Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is studio designer John Brandt. First of all, we keep on hearing about online concerts, and there are some artists that are fairly successful at it, except they usually don't get paid for it. Well, some artists do, though. BTS, the K-pop boy band, just had something called Bang Bang Con, and in it they had 756,000 concurrent paying customers from 107 different regions around the world. It's pretty amazing. Equivalent to 15 sold-out shows at 15,000 capacity stadiums. So basically they made more than $20 million from this one 100-minute long show. They did 12 songs, and it was across five rooms and two stages. I think the cool thing is the viewers got a chance to watch this from any of six different screen angles. So in fact, they saw six screens. They can pick the one they wanted whenever they wanted. And that was kind of an added extra. And especially in something here where it's kind of static, this is the perfect interactive tool for an online concert. Now, there are a lot of artists that are out there doing live streams, and some, again, are really successful, and some have numbers that are somewhat similar, except they're not getting paid for it. So this is pretty amazing. It shows it can be done. I'm not so sure how many can do the same thing, but that being said, it is possible. You just have to have a huge following like BTS. Now, taking that in a different direction... Garth Brooks is about to do a drive-in tour. So in other words, he's going to do a concert, and it's going to be broadcast to 300 drive-ins across the country. He's charging $100 per car or truck, and they sold 50,000 tickets within the first two hours. So this is coming up later in a month. It should be interesting to see how that works. I think in theory it's really cool. The only problem is you're listening to inferior audio, at the normal drive-in. So I'm not so sure how this would be received, but good for Garth Brooks for trying something different. So as we can see, there's a lot of things that are happening. Superstars are making money. Doesn't mean it's going to trickle down to everybody, though. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini-course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDFs on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. I was reading an article the other day on Music Radar. It was by Scott Salida, and it was about the things that he didn't miss about studios And I was reading it, and certainly I took it to heart because I felt pretty much exactly the same way. The first thing was cables. Take notice, in your home studio, you don't have many cables, at least compared to what we used to have to have in a particular studio. Now, I have a whole garage full of cables from my last studio, and I don't think I'm ever going to use them. I really don't want to get rid of them. The connectors are worth some money in themselves. But that being said, there's some cables out there that will probably never be used again. And this is something we don't have to deal with so much in the modern studio. Now, of course, it's different in a commercial studio, but we're talking about the typical studio that the average engineer or producer used to have. The other thing that we don't have to deal with and don't miss is noise. Now, again, once we're inside the box, it's a noiseless environment. And for those of you who never grew up in a real studio, one of the problems is there was always some noise gremlin for every session that occurred. Yeah, you'd have these mysterious noises that would come and go. You'd plug in a new piece of gear, and of course, there'd be a noise. You have to try to ground lift everything to get rid of it, and there was always a noise that you were chasing, and of course, we don't have that anymore. Noises from patch bays used to drive me crazy because patch bays, in fact, do get dirty, and you'd have to exercise them. Same with consoles, faders, switches. If you had channels that you didn't use, They get dirty and noisy. So in the box, we don't have to deal with that. Another thing is crawling behind racks. So you probably don't have a rack, or if you do, it's a very simple one in your studio. Unlike the racks that we used to have of 
all sorts of gear and we'd have rack upon rack upon rack. And inevitably, you'd be crawling behind it with a flashlight, once a session at least, trying to interconnect something or trying to chase down a noise or trying to figure out why something wasn't working. Don't miss that at all. No headroom. Well, that was a problem in many cases, especially when we were trying to mix semi-pro with pro gear. Pro gear, usually there's plenty of headroom, but you tried to mix some of the other devices that became popular that were semi-pro, so to speak, and then you had all these headroom problems, and of course we don't have any of that, if you know how to do it, in the box these days. Tuning issues. Well, you still have to tune your guitars, you still have to tune your instruments, but the fact of the matter is, when it comes to synthesizers, we don't have any of those problems that we used to have. Oscillator drift used to be a major pain in the butt. So you would have your synth perfectly in tune, and next thing you know, an oscillator would drift and it would be out of tune. You'd have to go tune it up, and this would happen multiple times over the course of a session. We don't have to deal with that anymore, thank God. Maintenance. One of the things you don't realize about having a big studio is it requires maintenance. And that's on a regular basis because there's always something that needs to be fixed, especially when we're talking the analog domain. Digital domain is much more forgiving, but in the analog domain, there was always something that was failing, and when it fails, it costs you money. For those of us who lived through the tape days, I don't know how many of you actually look back with nostalgia on it, there was a lot of hassle, not to mention the costs involved, and just the hassles of playing around with tape were not that much fun. And again, it's easy now to look back, especially if you've never done it, and look back with some fondness and say, oh boy, I wish we went through that. Well, no, <laughs> it's better now without it, believe me. Another thing you don't realize is the cost of owning a studio, especially one with the big console. Just the electricity and the air conditioning costs alone were enormous. One of the reasons why is big desks use a lot of power and they give off a lot of heat. You're paying for the power and all that heat, you have to cool down somehow so you're running air conditioning 24-7. Just the cost of that alone is too big a nut for many studios to even bother with these days. And finally, the limitations of analog. We don't have that anymore. If you need another track, it's really easy to dial up. If you need another 10 tracks, really easy to dial up. If you need another effects processor, well, no problem. Another reverb, no problem. Back in the day, we had limitations in all those because you only had so many reverbs, so many delays, so many limiters, so many processors. And if you go back to analog, we only had so many tracks. So today, it's so much better in so many ways. When I look back in those analog days, I'm glad I went through it. But the fact of the matter is, it's a whole lot better today than it's ever been. So appreciate what you have because it's very cool. My guest this week is John Brandt, who's owned studios and built custom audio equipment in both the UK and Nashville before delving deeper into the world of studio design. John's company, J.H. Brandt Acoustic Designs, now provides design and consulting services to music studios, commercial video and cinema facilities, home recording studios, home theaters, presentation and conference rooms, performance and entertainment spaces, educational facilities, and industrial acoustic applications all over the world. John also freely shares advice on most of the popular online audio forums and has numerous helpful articles on his website. During the interview, we talked about how much the science of acoustics has changed, his approach to different types of design jobs, the pros and cons of mass-loaded vinyl, the latest in acoustic treatment, and much more. John also took me through a model of the ideal studio design, which is a real eye-opener. I spoke to John via Zoom, from his home just outside of Jakarta, Indonesia. Let's start from the beginning, though, because I know you have a very interesting background. So let's go back to the beginning and tell me how you started in the business. Well, I started out, uh, I, really, I really kicked it off when I, when I started working as a roadie for, for, uh, for Jeremy Spencer in Europe. Mm -hmm. I was his guitar roadie. And that was in, when was that? 70, 74. 
that's when it really kicked off. I graduated high school in, seven, in 1971. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I left high school. I was going to go to college and study music. Okay. But a band happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, Funny so, how that works. You yeah. know, and I ended up in Chicago and, and then uh, uh, what, what was it, Ann Arbor and then to Boston. And, and I, I started getting good at, you know, doing some mixing and stuff and, and working with, you know, helping band the band with the gear and, and uh, I, I knew what I was doing or so. So they thought at the time I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> as long as they're happy. Yeah. It was, it, so I got a call uh, to go to Europe uh, uh, to help this new band. They were being put together for some like the Guy Lux show in Paris. And here I meet Jeremy. And um, so I worked with him for, gosh, I guess it was about eight, eight months or so maybe longer. I don't remember. It's really fuzzy back then. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and I toured Europe with several other bands and did a bunch of stuff and ended up in England, married an English girl and had, I had two kids and one is now, uh, my son is a, uh, a live sound engineer and, uh, does, does a very, very well in, in LA. He works in LA mm-hmm. and my daughter is in London. She's an actress. Okay, so how did that take you into getting your studio design chops together? Ah, man, lots of lots of tries. Uh, I think my first studio design was <clears throat> was back in ninety. Uh, was it ninety ninety one? Really, I mean, this is the really tried to studio design in ninety one. I worked with, with at. Uh, Byron Gallimore at um, Pride Music Group then and turned in, he, he bought bought Charlie's place out and turned it into Song Garden, I think, Song Garden, something like I that. I remember that, yeah. And then, so I, I helped him with that and it, no, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got the, got the idea of, well, you know what? There's a roadmap to all this. And... Um, I'm sticking with my technical stuff, always technical, always, you know, installing consoles and modifying them and electronics and stuff. And that's how I know uh, Bill Whitlock <laughs> and from his papers and stuff. I don't know him well. He's not like a buddy, buddy friend of mine. No, but I've, we've spoken and had, you know, sent emails back and forth and I share some of my designs with him and stuff. But, um, and that's where I got his 2010 paper on, the AES ground loops, the rest of the story, which is talking about the twisted live and neutral in studios, yeah. running the, the live and the neutral twisted with the ground straight, and it's solving so many problems. And still today, studio designers don't understand this, and they're just wiring it like the old thing and running the electrical up here and the audio down here and making huge loops. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, and uh, anyway, and I worked with Neil Muncy in 98 who, uh, who, who taught me about the zero loop area concept. It was fantastic. And it just changed my whole world. It was great. So, and it been incorporating that into studio design since, mm-hmm. um, like I said, like I said, in, in some posts on Facebook and in, in, in other blogs that don't try to do the, don't try to design this stuff yourself. I mean, some people get lucky. Yeah. Some people get lucky. I mean, oh, oh, what's his name that did Power Station, the, the producer? Oh, Tony Bongiovi. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tony Bongiovi. He, I think he got lucky, really, honestly. Yeah. He was really good. He was very fortunate. And, uh, but few do. Few really get lucky. You know, and this is why I say since, well, 1979 was the year that um, LEDE, RFZ criteria was published. Yeah. That was over 40 years ago. Yeah. If you look at 40 years ago in medical research, where were we? In cancer research, in uh, look at it in, in uh, uh, particle accelerator research, where were we 40 years ago? We were light years behind back there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Long, long time. And in the field of acoustics, a lot of research is going on. A lot of people are researching and, and coming up with new stuff and 
papers are being published daily. And, you know, I, I, I try to keep an eye on them. I, I got my head down most of the time and they go over my, you know, I miss them. But ever so often, I, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, re I'll read that. And uh, some very interesting stuff and some really good insights have come out. I, I really, now I know that both Hidley's and uh, Newell's non-environment designs were cutting edge at the time. They were really really very good but the problem with them is they're not good for human beings yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> humans don't like sitting in an anechoic chamber even though you've got a reflective front wall and a floor it's still anechoic everywhere else and it's it can be disconcerting and and our primitive part of our brain wants to fight or flight you know yeah and it stresses us out and we don't know what that is, but we go, gosh, I'm fatigued, man. This is, uh, I got to go out and get a cigarette or a cup of coffee or some fresh air, something, Yeah, you know? And so what the, you have to solve that problem with, with reflections, but you got to keep those reflections way below this Haas trigger thing. Right. And they talk about that with the LEDE concept, RFC, you need to have it in the Haas trigger. No, you don't. If you do, you're going to notice it and you're going to adjust according to what you hear. So, and here I get into the, the meat of why we wanted to, to, to meet. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is the capricious quality of the LEDE or RFC con concept. It is, is capricious because you go to one well, well-built, well-made LEDE or RFC room, same criteria flip yeah you go into a well-made room you sit down to work you go oh, okay wait let me play my 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 reference material and get my head around this okay oh, i see and walk around the room okay okay and then you sit down and you can work after a day of uh, acclimating yourself to that situation okay now if you're really good like eddie kramer goes in and he listens to, okay got this and he gets to work and he nails it every time <laughs> i mean these guys unbelievable anyway so it, you you go you, you get your head around it and you get to work and you do a good job. Then the next day or next week, you go to another studio, similar concept design. You sit down. Oh, this is really so messed up. And you, 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 you have to recalibrate yourself again. In other words, as Tom Hidley always said, when you are sitting in a control room, when you're trying to design a control room, you want the truth. You, that's all you want to get is the truth. You want accuracy, but if you have reflections that are causing comb filtering and, and all other phase issues, it's not working, is it? You might as well just stay home and use your headphones. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you might as well just, you know, is, I don't know. Don't spend all that money. It's not worth it. Now, see, I think we're coming from different places here. I know we're coming from different places. Yeah. When I recommend that somebody does an RFC, it's always because they have a home studio. There's nothing else. They have nothing in, in their room. And it's just a cheap and easy way for them to get something that's better than they had. So I never recommend that they build their studio around that concept. It's like, okay, you have nothing now. This is going to make it a little better. Correct. Just so you understand. Absolutely. No, I do understand. I really, really do. And, and, you know, I have conversations with new, new people all the time. Every day, a couple of them. We have interviews like this. Yeah. And, you know, as Clint Eastwood said in Dirty Harry, he said, man's got to know his limitations. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And if you know your limitations, then you can work with that. You know, I got, I got a small bedroom. I want to make it usable. Okay, do this. RFZ. That, that will fix it enough to get you started. And it'll, it'll teach you about tuning your head. That's good. It's all good. But then when you go about to spend money to build uh, from the ground up or you, you rent or buy a warehouse and you build a studio and then go to the damn RFZ concept. What's wrong with you <laughs> here? I got a new pistol. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Forgive me. I, I, I want to, I, I speak fluent French, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about French from France. I'm talking about French as an American slang. Okay. I, I want to say these words sometimes because it's the only one, the only words that define this so clearly, but I don't know if I can on your podcast anyway. 
Okay, let me ask you a question. So you've been doing this for a long time, and obviously there's a certain amount of trial and error, even if you're guided by some wonderful mentors, which you were. When did you get to the point where you went, ah, I think I have this now? Oh, that's every year. Every year. The next year I go, oh, shoot, what was I thinking? Oh, man, that's so messed up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. If If you're really looking for excellence and you're trying to do better, that's how it will be in an engineering career, in a, ma- in a mastering career, in a production career, it's always that way. Yeah, but at a certain point you go, okay, I think I have this figured out enough that I know I'm going to give the client something that they're going to love, rather than when you first started anything, it's like, I hope they like this, rather than I, you get to a point and you go, I know they're going to like this. Well, only honestly, honestly, frankly, just to be brutally honest with you and, and people go, what? Only that long ago, five years, five years ago. Hmm. Prior to five years, I could definitely improve on those designs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, prior to actually uh, uh, two years ago, I can I can improve on those designs. The math is all there, but there are some things. You know, a lot of times you can you can figure. Uh, use your roadmap. You use your criteria. You 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 do all your numbers and everything. There are things that will come up and get you that you didn't even think about. You know, if you, you know, the old philosophical trick of, well, if, what if you don't know that you don't know something? Yeah. Yeah. How do you know if, you know, it's like that. So eventually you'll figure it out because one of your clients will go, Hey John, this uh, is not working or why is this always, you know, and you go, well, wait a minute, let me, let me run the number. Oh, wait, did I miss this thing? Whatever it was, you know? Yeah. And so you go and you figure again. I looked at your website a lot yesterday, and one thing kind of jumped out at me. And I understand you're outside of Jakarta, so you're far, far away from most of your clients. So you can't do on-site research at all. It must be very difficult to do this from afar. Because I know there are so many different things that you learn when you go on-site and you actually look at everything. You go, oh, you didn't tell me about that. Oh, wait a second. Oh, you didn't even know that that was happening there. So how do you reconcile that? I reconcile it with, uh, you know, a requirement with my clients that we have very good communication and, and we do this mm-hmm. daily, you know, with all my clients, we have, have schedule and we go through things. I've got a client in Australia right now that I designed the project three years ago. He really hasn't done it yet and he's just starting it. So I'm going to upgrade his, update his, his design and work through him. And, and what I do, we do a video walkthrough and I say, wait, what's that? Show, no, show me that corner again. Okay. What is, what'd you do there? You know, I need to know and I can find out. And the thing is when you're, you could do it too. You're, you're experienced at hearing places and hearing the sound. And you know, when you see a place, you go, oh, I know what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah. You kind of do, you know, it, you have to have that experience in order. If you want to try to do what I do, uh, you, you kind of have to have that experience behind you. You know what these things sound like. And it's funny. I'm old and I've got, I've got tinnitus in both ears from too much rock and roll. And, and my, my wife and son are doing something. And I said, don't you hear that? Is there somebody out? Said, what? Where? I don't hear it. And it's because of ear training, I guess. But I notice things, you know, that they don't. It's funny. And they're younger, much younger than me. (laughs) I'm curious. You're an American. You grew up in the United States. How did you get to uh, Malaysia? Indonesia. Yeah. Jakarta, Indonesia. Mm, I met my wife, oh, 12 years ago. Come here, talking about a job here, a a project, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, met her at a hotel. She was working we had discussion just what I mean we just hit it off and bam we started writing to each other after I went back eight months later I was back here and I never left uh got it we've been married 11 years now yeah and uh we've got a 10 year old daughter so there you go yeah yeah uh this is wonderful I am I owe everything to her really I do I love that part of the world. I haven't been in Indonesia, but I recently went to uh, Malaysia and Singapore and, and all through there, and, and it was really fascinating. I loved it a lot. 
It's fascinating, all right. <laughs> yeah. There, are, there are some there's some pros and cons. Uh, the pros are are, believe it or not, they you know they say the freedom is not so high on the list over here. Well, actually, it kind of is because there's there's no police state here. They're they're afraid of people, which is good. And that you know you you have a little more personal freedom. To the 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 uh, you got the sea. And you got the tropical climate and it's just gorgeous. And the people are, are kind and polite, even though they're not that way behind your back, but at least to your face, they are. <laughs> what you don't know won't hurt you. So it's okay. Yeah, it's Exactly. Yeah. As long as you don't get in a dark alley yeah. without proper, yeah, you have to, <laughs> the thing is I learned here, and this is all way off our audio subject, but. If you go traveling anywhere in the world, you have to, as an American, you have to remember, you're not protected by nanny state anymore. Yeah. You have to be responsible. You are responsible for your actions and your choices. You go into a bad area, you might die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, that's not their fault. It's not the country's fault. It's your fault. You have to use your head. <laughs> you have to be smart. Be responsible. Anyway. Okay. So. I know you do a lot of different type of jobs and I'm curious, is your approach the same, generally the same to the mall? I mean, the difference between doing a commercial studio and a home studio and a home theater and maybe a video post place, would your general approach be the same? It's really similar. Very, very much the same. Okay. Number one, soundproofing. You, This is what I the first thing I ask my clients are how much soundproofing do you need? Because soundproofing is just keeping noise out and keeping your noise in. Right. And we need a, a, a number for that, a standardized number. And so sometimes I'll have them do their own, do some testing or hire a local person to come in there and, and, and do a suite of field transmission loss, FTL testing, mm-hmm. or they can do it with REW. You can do it if you know the procedure. So I, I talk them through it. I charge extra for this, but uh, I talk them through the procedure and run the sweeps and then send me the data and I'll do the, the, the ASTM, uh, you know, the, the STC curve and, and charts for them. Yeah. Uh, and so that's number one. You assess your situation. You find out what your noise criteria is in the, in the area and, and then we meet or exceed that. That's number one. No matter if it's a home studio or a professional facility, because you don't want to be bothering your neighbor. If you're doing a bedroom studio, like if you're upstairs, you can do a mix room, but you can't do a little tracking room upstairs unless you float the floor. And if you're using, if you float the floor on U-boats, it's not going to work. You might as well just run, put down some regupol, which is an impact flooring, and that's it. It doesn't float your floor. I'm sorry, I'm getting off track. In uh, isolation, and then you have your ventilation. Now, once you get it isolated and sealed, you got a, a, a sealed room, you close that door, it's airtight. You have to exchange the air or else people <laughs> will fall over. Absolutely. The requirement is, I mean, this is the standardized requirement, 15 cubic feet per minute per person or half a cubic meter per minute per person, mm-hmm. wherever you are, uh, whatever system works best for you. But you've got to have that. If you go in and close that door and you don't have ventilation, it's like, it's like the Wicked Witch of the West with Dorothy up in the tower and she turns the hourglass over and says, see that? That's how long you've got to be alive. <laughs> yeah, and right. it's not long, my pretty. So, you know, <laughs> you, you have to have fresh air. And I've heard that it, it, oxygen is really required for creativity. It's also required for life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, why are you talking about isolation? It seems to be such a brute force system to overcome that. I mean, really, what we're talking about is mass to overcome it. Now, all- Number one is mass. Yes. Okay, number one is mass. I see things here and there about new materials that are in making that easier rather than going through cinder block walls and, and whatever, oh, or, yeah. or, you yeah. know, three layers of, of gypsum board or whatever. What have you seen that, or, or used for that matter, that 
helps improve that in a more modern way. Okay. Um, green glue can help. Mm-hmm. It's a CLDM, constrained layer damping material. And now there are some other CLDMs that are available. There's one here of what's it called? something 30. Anyway, it's a, it's a mixed thing in a bucket and you travel it on. Similar stuff. Same thing they use on aircraft. You know, they sandwich the, the aluminum panels together and they, it really attenuates the sound. That's good stuff. Sometimes, though, it's not worth it. Depends on your situation. You have to, you know, add up all the factors. And usually, honestly, we, I still go with standard building materials. I haven't found anything, any magic product to solve the problem. The best thing to use is, is, is fire-rated gypsum board. Get the heaviest, densest stuff you can find. Now, heavy and dense, it, that's per thickness, okay? Yeah. If you get, you get it, well, this is heavier and denser. It's, it's two inches thick. Well, how are you going to put it up? Yeah. <laughs> Just get the regular fire-rated stuff and stack it to the thickness that's required without any air gaps. Now, that's a mass. And then you have seal. You have to seal your per- all around the perimeter with a flexible caulk so you know they, it doesn't break open because buildings move. They move every day. The sun comes up, they grow. The sun goes down, they shrink. And everything shrinks and expands at different rates. And so things are going to open up if you don't do it right. Anyway, that's the mass approach. Then you have the mass air mass approach, which is a spring function. It's a, it's a resonance function. And you can, you can multiply your, your sound transmission loss incredibly by using that approach usually requires requires a lot more space yeah that's the downside that is a downside it's just one of those things though it is physics that's been used for years that concept has been used for forever almost in recording studios they found that it works and you know (laughs) like like the old man said if it's not broke don't fix it (laughs) you know but I see, I mean, I have a little um, Facebook booth group, you know, voiceover artists and booths. I'm just trying to help people with doing their voiceovers and stuff and reading books and whatnot. It's just a little tiny thing. See, it's a, it's a different approach than studios, really. And right here, I mean, I don't know if you can see it. I got this panel here that helps my mic sound better in my concrete office room. I've got panels behind me. See those fancy uh, pattern there? Those are panels. Now, I just stuck up in the corner. Now, those are panels, which I don't normally do in studios. This is for voiceover. It's for conference rooms and different things like that. That's what these are for. And they work fine for that. It's for voice frequencies from 125 to 4K. Now, I really got off the subject there. My little voice group, I've had a lot of posts talking about, well, I've, I auto-mute. Uh, you know, I put auto-mute on this side, and then I put gypsum board and stuff. I said, you know, if you use your MLV and then you put gypsum board on it or drywall on it, you've defeated the purpose. You might as well have used just an eighth inch uh, uh, drywall there instead of the MLV because it kills it. It kills it dead. If it's limp, it works wonders. It works great. And the, the application for mass loaded vinyl and that sort of thing is in curtains or big uh, blankets like they sell from who is it? Um, Kinetics. Kinetics sell these blankets for it for industrial use. They have grommets on the top. You hook them around your machinery that's on the that's on the warehouse floor, making all this noise to quieten it down, and it does a great job. Mm-hmm. But for studios, no. Um, I've used MLV in in uh, mobile rigs. Okay, taking a mobile uh, a mobile uh, a caravan and turning it into a little studio where the, you know, the, the steel or aluminum sides come in and they're ribbed and they have ribs going around and you can attach the MLV to the rib and then add ribs to that, build it out. And so the MLV is left limp and then you've got your panels inside there and it does a great job with, with this much space, you know, just do your soundproofing in. And you don't, you can't put gypsum board in there because you hit a bump and everything cracks and falls. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's one of those things. So we talked about isolation and your thoughts and approach. 
Let's talk about the inside of a studio, forgetting about the soundproofing. Let's just talk about acoustic treatment for a second. So th- I know that's evolved over the years, and, and the whole concept of how you treat everything has evolved quite a lot. What is the state of the art now? State of the art are, are, are two ways. One is multiple layers, which is what I use, or membranic uh, a system like, like Thomas Jean-Jean uses, uh, Northward Acoustics. I will go with the, the, the easier to build stuff as much as possible because I don't like, I don't like seeing my, money, my, my, my clients losing money or going in the hole to build this thing. And you can build a million-dollar studio that only costs you, you know, 50000 You can do it. It just has to be done right. And, and you can use some cheaper materials as long as uh, you don't skimp on the ones that count. I use different densities of materials to, for the absorption. And I use air. I use lightweight fiber. I use Dacron, which is a, is a very low GFR. Mm-hmm. And then I use a little bit of rigid rock wool or, glass or, or rigid you know, fiberglass like the 703 stuff. But I, I only use it in one-inch pieces, not two-inch. Use it more like a panel. And the only two-inch pieces I use is smack dab on the, uh, at the pressure zone on the wall, right in that boundary zone. So that's where it really, really uh, um, shines. It really works well. But I don't use rock wool or rigid fiberglass as a rule for treatment. It's a boundary thing. Um, gosh, I, I should show you one of my latest designs here. Um, I will, I'll pull this up. Here's a, um, I've got two versions. One is a hard flush mount and the other is a soft flush mount. Most of my jobs, most of my builds are incorporate a soft flush mounting of the speakers. Mm, yeah. They work very well. The only problem with any kind of flush mounting is floor bounce. You're still going to get that. And it usually exhibits itself as a, as a dip right there between 100 and 200 or somewhere around there. And it's frustrating as heck. And I think I've solved the problem with, with uh, by re- revisiting some of Tom Hidley's stuff. So the thought there, what I've always felt is that you actually need that to some degree because it gives you a sense of realism in the room. And if you deaden that too much, then in fact, it sounds uh, unnatural. Floor bounce is something that we're used to. Well, true. This is true. But when you're listening to a source, you want to hear it just clean and clear without that. that well, you don't want a resonant frequency or anything. Yeah. Right. We want to get rid of the phase cancellation, but we want the floor because the reflective floor keeps that RT60 up. So it, it maintains a level of, of realness. That, I think, is what you, what you mean. Yes, right. You go into a carpeted control room and it's not it's so good you know um you lose a lot of that top end and you 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 lose that sense of it and there's a lot of things that i do in rooms to um to keep the top end in the room longer without affecting your mix decisions it's just it's there but it's not noticeable but you would definitely notice it if it weren't there may i share my screen yes please yes okay this is a wireframe view of one of my latest designs. I'm going to go into conceptual here and uh, rotate a little bit and remove some layers. I'll take the ceiling off first. Now I'm going to remove the, the top, which is a concrete box. Now this is ideal. This is like, well, if you could do what you wanted, this is the way to do it. Yeah. These are our TGI Joyce. This is, uh, come on, ceiling gypsum board. These are waveguides above the drop ceiling. Okay. Let me, let me, uh, interesting go around it here. They are all, each one of them is pointing at the woofer of the speakers. Hmm. Okay. When a speaker reproduces, it produces a sphere of energy that goes out omnidirectionally out, flows out from it like a bubble. Mm-hmm. And so this will take that bubble and shift it and, and bounce it towards the ceiling and, and run it through the fiber many more times than it would ordinarily. Now, above this drop ceiling, as I remove 
hide the, the waveguides. Above this, there's about this much lightweight, fluffy fiberglass. Now, in the ceiling, I haven't put the HVAC in yet, which I shall do. This is just a, a design concept in, in progress here. Now, here is our hard flush system. And that drop ceiling was down to about here, as you can see the top of this. How high is the ceiling? So, I have to measure it. Um, let's see. Um, oh, probably uh, 14 feet. Okay. Something like that. Um, this, this drawing is in metric. I've become very accustomed to metric and I love it. I wish we'd, I wish the United States would, would go to metric because the imperial system is oh, pain in the butt. Jimmy Carter tried. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> There'll be a few more generations, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, I've got our, our, our systems flush mounted here. This is a concrete wall cladded with a nice finished plywood. Really nice wood. And amps are embedded here and connected very directly to the speakers. I'm showing the ATC-110s and some rhythmic subs there. You know, I was going to ask you what would be your preference for monitors, especially um, soffit-mounted monitors. Would that be it, ATCs, or is that what the client wanted? I love ATCs. They are so truthful. Yeah. And I will repeat what Tom always said is, you want the truth. That's what you want is the truth. Uh, PMCs aren't bad, but they have that rise on the top end that I don't like. And a lot of people tend to put the toilet paper over the tweeters on those things like you used to do on the NS10. Yeah, yeah. And they need to fix that. And I put subs in the back in this room. Ah. I've got a diffuser. Oh, this is, yeah, we got four subs in here. So it's this base management system, and it's really accurate that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a very deep back wall. Very important, very important to trap the base. We've got this diffuser. Now, this diffuser is not, you're not going to hear this. You're not going to hear it at all. Your subconscious will. Mm -hmm. This is a prime 1151. It's not a prime seven like most garbage is out there. The, the prime sevens are for conference rooms or for LED rooms, which, you know, that doesn't work. It just doesn't. You hear it and you compensate for it with your knobs. So you won't hear this, but this will give you a sense of a back wall because right here, as you can see, there's no bloody back wall. I mean, it goes deep, really deep. We got What's the volume of the room? How deep is it? Just out of curiosity. Let's see. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Let me pull up my, it looks big. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a, it, well, it's not that big. It's really not that big. This is the volume of the room. The volume is 185 cubic meters or 6,500 cubic feet, but that also includes a four foot space underneath the floor. So we take that away. The height is not four, five, seven. It's subtracted. It's probably 327 or something from the floor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and three, so it's not 15 feet high. It's more like 13 feet. Yeah, okay, I get it. But it's it's plenty of volume. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a nice size actually. Yeah, it's not it's not too big and it's not too small. As you can see, the man isn't that little in here. Now, if I take this away, and that's a grill that goes over this floor trap. That goes down about four feet, and this is an anechoic chamber underneath and goes under the whole floor, and it also appears in the back, it comes up through the back to the wave guys. This is this back is about three and a half, four feet deep. Wow. Okay, that's new to me doing that. I don't think I've seen that before. Well, this is done in NE rooms. It's done like this in non-environment rooms. The sides are done a lot deeper in non-environment rooms, but I found it unnecessary. So um, you got you have a point source here. This is your point. This is where the sound is coming from. It's flowing from front to back and it's raking the sides of these, this treatment here, which is it's going through a lot of this at, a, at an oblique angle. And so it goes through, 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 It's really deep. It's deeper than you would think because of the angle of incidence. They're 12 inches deep. So that it's not thin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good size there. That's why you, you probably couldn't do this in a room that was constructed already. No. 
No, you can't. This is, this is from a ground up. Correct. It's the only way to do this is ground up. This, I'm going to hide all of this, and we're going to go back to conceptual. I'll show you my, my basement. This is what's going on underneath. It's an anechoic chamber. Wow. So what this does, it traps your width mode and your length mode, which are the most crucial in the room. And then that, that's totally trapped because, see, the, you, if I look at top view, you can see the flow, the way it flows from the front down through and then up the back. It's like, it's not, it's like the Roach Motel. They check in, but they don't check <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, right. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. Here's a side view of it. This is with everything. You see the, the waveguides in the ceiling. There's fluffy fiberglass filled in here, not shown for clarity. Mm -hmm. And there's fiberglass around uh, behind this angled plywood that I didn't el elaborate on. And we were talking about reflections and reflectivity and keeping the the high frequencies in there. On the sides, I have these angled uh, reflection, reflective slats that are pointed to the back of the room. They deflect anything from getting to the engineer, but they keep the energy in the room a little longer. Same way with these angled, this angled plywood along the sides and walls. How big is the shell on this? How thick are the walls in the shell? I got 250, uh, the, the 250, that's, that's 10 inches. And, and it's what? No, this is poured concrete. This is an ideal. This is an idealized concept, okay? So remember, there's, there's ideals, and then there's reality in the real world. And, you know, you'll, you'll notice all the corners, they're perfectly 90 degrees. Real world, you'll never see that. <laughs> well, it's funny because the, there is a studio. My friends at Oasis Mastering up the street from where I live here, they're in an Oxberger room. Yes. And it was originally built for ADR. And when the, the post company went out of business, you know, they took it over. So one day the, the owner, Eddie Schreier, took me upstairs to look down over the top to see how this thing was built. And the interesting thing is it's in the flight path of Burbank Airport. Uh-huh. So it has to be quiet. And it is. It's dead quiet. Because it's pretty much the same as what you're talking about. It's the same shell that, that they had. It works. It really works. It has to be. You know, remember uh, um, Jim Carrey in Liar, Liar. He was telling the judge he had to go to the bathroom. And he was saying it could give you problems and maybe cause cancer and stuff if you, if you held it and stuff. And he says, and the judge says, is that true? And he says, it has to be <laughs> because yeah, right. he couldn't lie, you know. So yeah, it ha we have to do it like that until we come up with something that's tested and proven to work better. Absolutely, um, I would really like to see something come out that's tested and works better than this because that's uh, cheaper to build. Oh my goodness! Yes, please. Well, every now and then I see some things that are a, a paper of uh, some experimental treatment that someone's working on that always sounds real good, but I never see the product <laughs> thereafter, which kind of tells you what's, you know, where that's going on. Okay, so let's go someplace else for a second. So what was the biggest mistake you ever made? Oh my goodness. Uh, I think angling speakers. Hard flush mounted and then angling the speakers. That, uh, let's see, another thing. Oh, uh, one time... Um, this wasn't really my fault that I didn't have the information and uh, it was ignored and we had sound issues, soundproofing issues. So it's important if you're working with a, a designer that you tell him everything. Yeah, sure. You make sure you give him all the data. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I worked at a brand new studio. It was in a small little industrial park here in, in Chatsworth, I think. It worked great until... Nobody understood that there was a, a metal worker on the other side of the complex who had a, a metal press. And every time this press came down, everything shook. It will. So they had Fleetwood Mac coming in after my session, and they stayed for a day and then left because they couldn't work. So eventually what they had to do is go to the guy and pay to float the floor under the press exactly. and, and that's, that's the, that's the cheapest yeah. way. Actually, that's what I always suggest to my clients. We, we had a 
place in, uh, where was it? Taiwan. They built they had a studio on the 13th floor. On the second floor, there was a print shop. And they had some big presses going. And I said, the best thing to do, you need to go down there and you need to get them to install this, you know, do this. And, and, and they did, and it, it solved the problems. Uh, you know, if you got kids running upstairs and the thumping is getting in your studio and that's, that's all the problem. They, they don't mind hearing your, your, your music, but it's the kids thumping, running around in the living room. That's a problem. Yeah. Get some reggae pole, put down the floor, put the, put the flooring on top of that and impact. That's the easiest way to fix it rather than build a room in a room. Yeah. Source, fix the source. Yeah. Last question, John, what is the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? I don't know if it's business advice, but this is something I tell everyone. And I think it's very important. Uh, well, well, the first thing is don't, don't get into debt if you can help it. But number, the number one thing is do what you love. Do what you love. Because I mean, I, I came out, I came, I was born like this. I was a little kid. I was doing these, this kind of thing. And it's what I've always wanted to do. So I, I followed that. I didn't listen to my dad when he said, music business? Oh, John, <laughs> come on. You know, you, you need to get a real job, you know. But I followed my heart. And you know what? It's not about, you know how you get good at something? Practice. Practice. It's not, it's not talent. It's not uh, uh, natural. It's practice. But those that are called naturally talented or naturally good at something, naturally good at math or good at drawing or good at music. It's because that's what they love to do and they do it all the time and they get good at it. So if you do what you love, you'll be good at it and you'll rise to the top of your, whatever you do. 10,000 hours. Yes, sir. Oh my. You can find out more about John and his designs and find some great tools and resources at jhbrandt.com. J-H-Brandt, that's J-H-B-R-A-N-D-T, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.